Welcome to Breaking the Underdog Curse for Chiropractors. I'm your host, Dr. Don McDonald, author of the best-selling book, The Underdog Curse. We give vitalistic chiropractors a chance to learn from the best around the world, discovering how they overcame their challenges and achieved success. In order for chiropractic to thrive, we must have thriving chiropractors. Now listen up, it's time to crush the curse. Hello, podcast listeners. I just wanted to reach out and thank you guys. Uh, This is our 62nd episode. Uh, We are encroaching on 100,000 downloads, and that's uh, from all of you sharing the podcast with your friends um, and chiropractors and uh, and giving us feedback on iTunes. So I really want to thank you very much. Um, For those who are new listeners, make sure you go to www.drdonmcdonald.com and all the old previous episodes are there. And there's some really good ones that are right at the very beginning, and that was before um, kind of the word got out on the podcast. So if you, uh, if you go to that website, go back into the older episodes. There's some, some just absolute gems out, out there. We're coming, coming up to one year having the podcast out. So I just wanted to reach out and say thanks. So I hope you enjoy the, uh, the podcast episode today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Breaking the Underdog Curse. For chiropractors, that's Vitalistic Chiropractors. This is Dr. Don McDonald, and I have a return guest because I initially found this guest from his first book called Winning the Story Wars, and uh, we had tons of great feedback from our podcast interview, and at the very end of that podcast, if you might remember, he just mentioned about he had a new book coming out called Unsafe Thinking, and he just kind of mentioned a little bit about it, and I thought, oh, that sounds kind of neat. And then I just recently got the audiobook and, and finished that in my car, and it's and it's awesome. It's amazing. And um, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time introducing him because you just have to go back to the the last se- section because we already we already talked about kind of where he came where he came from. His dad's a chiropractor, so he's like close to our heart. And uh, and and today I really want to dive into his new book. So uh, Jonas Sachs, welcome to the podcast again. Thanks for having me, Don. Great to be back. It's awesome. So. First, I want to just ask a little bit, because this is an amazing book, and, and just tell us a little bit about what made you want to write this book in the first place. Yeah, this book is kind of about how to unlock your creative potential, and really what happened was that my creative potential was getting super locked up, and I was stuck. You know, I started a creative agency when I was 24 years old. It was wild. It was experimental. We were trying to do all this social change stuff, and having these big viral hits before anyone had ever seen an internet video, we were making them basically and getting 20 million, 30 million people to share these messages. And as we got successful and the company grew, I kind of switched over from being an explorer of this new medium to being something of an expert in it. And I got 30, 40 employees. And instead of just going out into the world and trying to be creative, I was creating rules and predictability and scale. And all of those things were slowly sapping my creativity, but they were also building the business. And, um, you know, I didn't know how to get out of that trap of reproducing what had worked in the past, but knowing that the future was going to be very different and being dependent on one way of doing things. I I lost the fun and the creativity, but didn't know how to kind of break through. So I went out and talked to about a hundred innovators, read all the science and try to figure out how do people change when they need to, even when things seem to be going okay, but you know that the world is changing and you've got to change with it. You know, how do you do that? this was the uh, result was of all that experimentation and learning. That's cool. So did you, did you want to write the book first or did you want to find an answer first? 
I think I needed the answer first, but as I started looking into it, I, I started realizing that I should be writing this stuff down and that eventually I should be able to share it with other people because it was a very difficult process for me, very arduous and, you know, emotionally hard too. And so I wanted to see if other people could benefit from what I had to learn. That's cool. And, and uh, like I said, I've gone through the book and so everybody make sure you go and get it because it's a, uh, it's a really good book. I really enjoy it. Um, so now what, we, what I'll do is I'll ask you the opposite of what you're writing about is what's the drawback of safe thinking? <laughs> yeah, I mean, safe thinking is that way of thinking that allows us to you know, rely on the lessons of the past, to follow predictable patterns, uh, to do what you know, we look at and see other people doing. All of those things feel really good. They make us feel safe, essentially. And they increase our ability to do things quickly and solve problems, bat them down. But as the world changes around us, if we're continually doing what we did yesterday, you know, it's not going to continue to work. And we, we sort of know that. But the problem is that the more stressed we get and the more that the world offers us challenges, the more likely our brains are, if this is part of evolutionary programming, to fall back on the tried and true. It's, it's you, know, you find that quick solution, you copy the competition, you do what worked yesterday, and that feels right to us. And that's partly because when our ancestors faced threats, they didn't need to you know, whiteboard a whole bunch of new ideas. They just needed to you know, run from a lion, essentially. So we find, you know, when we get stressed, we find that easy out. And that easy out tends to put us deeper and deeper in a hole. So safe thinking can be great if your field is not changing, your world is not changing. But when the world is changing, safe thinking becomes extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so then we'll just go the opposite. What, what, would, be, what would be unsafe thinking? <laughs> well, you know, if you write a book called Unsafe Thinking, you've got to be able to answer that question. And certainly, <laughs> a, lot of people, a lot of people see the title and they're thinking, okay, are you just saying you've got to go out and do the craziest thing you possibly can do? Do you have to constantly buck convention and tradition? And you know, while there's a lot of elements of the, in the book about how to be wildly creative and, and take risks, it's not about taking risks all the time. It's mm -hmm. about finding those parts of our brains and our um, activity, you know, and our, and our action patterns that we've left uh, fallow, that we haven't invested in, that make us uncomfortable. So some of us might be you know, very analytical. Well, how do we become more intuitive? Or if we constantly are acting intuitively, how do we become more analytical? How do we stop just collaborating with those people who make us feel most comfortable? You know, how do we you know, collaborate with the enemy is one of the things I, I write a lot about. Um, you know, how do we question our own expertise and not invest our egos in one way of thinking. All of these things to kind of broaden our palettes. All the science shows that the more unusual ex experiences and thought patterns we have, the more possibilities open up. And so the book is not about living in the risk zone at all times. It's about pushing ourselves past our personal comfort to become more creative. That's true. And well, it's just like at the gym or anything, right? You got to push yourself a little bit or else you're not going to grow. Right. So that's the, that's the thing. Um, if someone feels like they're not very creative, um, what, are, what are a couple of, of steps that someone can do to maybe break into that creative mind? Yeah, so there's, there's a number of things that we can do. We first, uh, a lot of the science shows something quite simple, which is that having unusual experiences, you know, this is again, sort of stepping out of our area of expertise, humbling ourselves by doing something we're not at all good at can be very powerful for expanding the creative palette. And that's for two reasons. One is because um, there's something called uh, analogical creativity, which means that if we go do something that we're pretty bad at and we've never tried before, we create all these analogies and new ideas about the things that we are good at. So Steve Jobs very famously, for instance, you know, took calligraphy classes and that gave him this amazing idea that computers should be beautiful. Well, the, the big, big uh, creative insights of the 1980s 
that led to Apple's success. So when you go out and you know, take a dance class or a singing lesson or fix cars, you may see in your chiropractic work, for instance, new opportunities, new metaphors, and new possibilities. And that loosens the creative network or, or the knowledge networks you have and creates new possibilities and new ideas. Um, another thing I found is that a lot of people find themselves uncreative because they are so invested in staying safely within their expertise for ego reasons. So I mm -hmm. uh, looked at a study of experts and uh, 20,000 uh, 20, predictions over 20 years and experts are worse than dart throwing monkeys at predicting the future, it turns out. Um, so they, they, they cannot see past their own set of predictions that always follow the same pattern because they believe that that's their personal brand, that's who they are, and if they step out of that one way of thinking, they're going to lose their authority. And so it's called entrenchment, where the more we know about our field, the more quick we become, the better we become at doing certain things, but also the more resistant we become to change. And so it's about releasing the ego from what we know. And I tell the story of this one guy, Vineet Nayar, who's a, um, a CEO of a 56,000 person company. The company is in deep trouble. It's an IT outsourcing company. And he's just taken over. Everyone, he's in India. So in India, a lot of the CEOs seem like emperors. They know what to do. They tell people what to do. They're the experts but he knows he doesn't know how to solve these problems. So he gets up on stage and instead of giving a strategy PowerPoint for 6,000 people, he turns on some Bollywood music and starts dancing. And he's terrible at it and he's sweating and everyone's laughing at him. And when he's done, he then tells everybody, okay, we're gonna try to solve this together. And he tripled revenues for the company over the next five years. And he says the dance was so important because it let him not only look more approachable to his people, which was important, but let him come down off that pedestal and just sort of admit, okay, I don't know everything I need to know. I'm not gonna try to pretend to be more than I am. And people who are uncreative are sometimes locked into um, just that fear of looking like they don't know. So those are two things you can really do. I, as I mentioned before, there's many other things in the book about how to just bust out to a little bit more creativity. Um, sometimes if you're trying to solve a problem and you're stuck, uh, coming up with more solutions to the problem doesn't work. You've got to think of a new way to look at the problem or solve a different adjacent problem. Uh, so, you know, we might not be able to convince people of something that we are trying, when we're trying to change their minds, but if we open a new pathway um, that's more fun or more exciting as opposed to trying to break down their old knowledge structures, you know, we can get them to, to change their behavior. So lots of thinking about how to kind of get counterintuitive about, about problem solving. But um, to answer that question completely, I have to tell you about the whole book. So yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> well, I just gave you a little taster because people, yeah, they'll, they, they, I'm sure they'll pick it up because it's a, it's an amazing read. Um, I, I like it. you had a little section there about rules and uh, mm -hmm. and and you know we do need we we need rules to not have chaos, but sometimes um, some of the biggest innovators uh, break the rules. And I was wondering if you tell a little bit about um, about disobedience and how I think you call it intelligence disobedience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tell me yeah. a little about that. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah, so our companies exist basically and our, our, our communities exist based on some amount of rules. We need people to kind of play well together and follow um, patterns that make it, you know, predictable. We understand what people are going to do and people aren't just running all in the same direction. But if everybody follows the rules, they're all going to come up with basically the same solutions. I tell the story of Gmail um, and how Marissa Meyer, who is the, uh, the boss of Paul Buhite, who created Gmail, basically forbid him from creating Gmail because she thought an email program that read your emails and gave you ads based on those emails was incredibly creepy and, you know, not appropriate. So 
she thought he was breaking the, you know, when he disobeyed her and just made Gmail anyway, um, he was breaking two kinds of rules. He was breaking the rules of you got, you got to listen to your superior. And he was also breaking the rules of um, sort of morality. Generally, it seemed immoral. Um, but he broke those rules in a way that um, is been, has been studied called articulated dissent, where you're not doing it in secret. You're doing it in a way that's out in the open and for the good of the entire group. So he didn't launch Gmail to everyone. He just launched Gmail basically to Marissa Meyer. And she was like, whoa, this thing is really cool. Um, and when she got a taste of it, she started to realize its value. And he really articulated what he was doing for the good of the group. So when people do that, they're actually judged by their bosses as more loyal, um, not less. And um, what, what companies can do to, to encourage intelligent rule breaking, because if you're running a company or running in a community, you basically have to know that people are breaking rules all the time. Because to get work done, you cannot simply follow the rules. You've got to, you know, there's workarounds everywhere. And a lot of those workarounds are actually more efficient ways of doing it, but no one wants to get punished, so no one talks about it. So a few things you can do to sort of open up that creativity and get those stifling rules out of the way, one is just minimize the number of rules in your organization. So a lot of CEOs I talked to said, you know, at some point they had to get all the rules on the table, written and unwritten, and they could cut 50 to 75% of them because they weren't serving anymore. And that actually made it a lot easier to move forward. But also intelligent disobedience means teaching people how to look you in the eye and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something different. Um, because you don't want people doing it in the shadows. You want people to right. talk about, hey, I found a better way to do timesheets, or I found a better way to get this process done than you've ever thought of, and now I want to talk about it. And so intelligent disobedience is really that process of learning that we tolerate disobedience here, when it's for the good of the group, and here's how you do it in the, in the open. And um, you know, the, the power that comes out of that is just immense when there's that dynamic flow of rules getting, getting fewer and better at all times. And then finally, the, to, to morality, there's all these studies that show that when we have cognitively diverse groups, people, groups of people of different backgrounds, different values, different life experiences, different politics, we get more creative. So I tell the story in the book of a guy who, a preacher in Boston, who cut murders by two thirds in his neighborhood, not by working with the at-risk youth, but by working with the actual gang members who were killing people because they were the ones who knew what was needed to get the streets safer. Um, so sometimes the people that we most think are enemies or we want to hate um, are the people who have those solutions for us and opening that up is that kind of rule breaking can be very powerful too. Yeah. And I think a lot of chiropractors who are listening to this, that that's going to be super helpful when you have a team, we have chiropractic assistants. Sometimes, uh, you know, if, if you have a driver personality, you have, you have, a tendency to be a little bit more um, like authoritarian, like you're, you're making all the rules and, and it's nice to make a nice environment. And then a lot of times some of the best ideas I know we've got in our office is getting it back from our staff because yeah. they, they're the front line. They're the first line. They're list, They're answering the phones. They're talking to all the practice members and patients and they're the yeah, ones yeah. out there, right? Yeah. I mean, I tell the story in the book about some medical errors actually that, that happened because in they, they've studied this heavily because a hospital is one of the most dangerous places you can be in the world, right? Yes, we know that. More likely to come out of that, you know, injured or dead than anywhere else. And, you know, a lot of studies have been done to figure out why. And they find that, you know, you've got a team of people in a um, operating room, for instance, and the, the nurses and the assistants often see many, many things. But if you have a very authoritarian, authoritative doctor who just pushes you through a process quickly, that's what leads to medical errors. In the same way, that airline pilots um, who you know tell the flight attendants to sit down and shut up and don't listen to what the passengers are seeing in the 
in the cabin can often turn off the wrong engine when one engine is on fire and cause a crash. So um, yeah, the, especially with airline pilots, they've taken the authority away from the pilot and created more of a team structure. Now they're trying to do that in hospitals. Um, but you know, so, so yeah, in a chiropractic office, the same thing probably really applies that people closest to the problems and closest to the customers often know things that, you know, the more remote people don't. That's cool. Um, we, we coach a lot of chiropractors and work with chiropractors and, and when they first get out in practice, you know, they're borrowing a lot of stuff from other people. So they're borrowing procedures, they're borrowing chiropractic technique, they're borrowing all this personal development stuff from everybody. And, and eventually, um, you know, our goal is to try to make it their own, right? And mm-hmm. use use those skills long enough so that you, they're kind of automatic and then you can tap into your intuition. And I know you have some stuff that you did some stu- the studies about how to develop intuition. Cause people are like, how do you teach that? Cause, um, just for example, like adjusting, for example, um, you know, I, I've been a chiropractor for 20 years and then when, when I'm trying to teach someone else how to adjust, it's tough, it's tough because I'm doing it a lot now through intuition. And so it's hard to, how do you teach that? Right. So, so, um, I know you, you did a little bit of work on looking into intuition and what it was and, and how you can tap into that. Yeah. So, you know, intuition is, is, is complicated and, you know, totally. <laughs> We all have it. You know, we all rely on it. We've all been fooled by it. So, you know, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And I, I wrestle with that a lot in writing the book. We're trying to figure out, um, you know, what's good to follow our intuition or to, you know, always question our intuition, you know, to be counterintuitive at times. And uh, it took a while to sort of tease it all apart. But what I found was, you know, that intuition often is this source of genius. And, you know, they've studied, for instance, chess grandmasters. And, and maybe a chess grandmaster is similar in some ways to a chiropractor in that, you know, it's a, it's a contained environment and you're, you're trying to play a game again and again and again. And the more that a chess grandmaster plays chess, the faster and smarter they get at it and the, and the more they can destroy a beginner um, because they can just see a board and see what, what a beginner could never see in, you know, a hundred years instantly without even, you know, thinking about it. And that's because we have all this ability to process um, information in our subconscious faster than we can in with our conscious minds. Yeah. And, um, when we do that, um, the, the information travels up these pathways that are ancient and that we, they don't come to us as pictures and words. They come to us as feelings. So you might feel, oh, I'm touching that chest piece or I'm touching that person's body in this way and I feel something and I'm going to follow that. And um, you know, if, we, if we abandon that and don't follow that and are constantly you know, letting a computer do that for us or you know, using data to figure out what to do next, um, you do lose that thing that makes it, our, our work special in many ways. At the same time, um, intuition can trap us because we don't really know where these things come from. And sometimes it can just be bias, you know, dressed up as intuition. So we've done it this way for a million years. It feels good to us, so we keep doing it. But maybe the science and the practice has moved on and we haven't, you know, paid attention to that. I tell the story of Silicon Valley investors who, you know, openly say that they use their gut to make decisions about where to invest. And yet they invest $34 in men for every dollar they invest in a female entrepreneur, even though female entrepreneurs tend to do better. And so what's going on there is that they're just saying, oh, this feels right because it feels like what I did last time. This, you know, this guy who looks like me, sounds like me, feels right because it makes me comfortable. That's just bias. That's not really intuition. <laughs> so um, it goes back to something that I said a little bit before, which is um, it's great to stay in those patterns of intuitive thinking once we become a master at something. But we have to constantly be checking our intuition against reality. Um, 
getting feedback from our environment. Uh, the best way to keep your intuition from just becoming biased is to get lots and lots of feedback from the environment. So let's say you're an intuitive chiropractor, trying on the fly here to apply it to a field that I haven't tried before. Yeah, no worries. That's <laughs> going to be creative. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Puts me out of my comfort zone. Um, and you do things, you confidently do things with your intuition and when you make an adjustment, for instance. Um, if you're not really following up and figuring out what's, what, how that's affecting your patients and mm -hmm. getting as much feedback from your patients as possible, you might be continually doing something that's not working and it feels better and better the more that you do it. Um, if you're not staying abreast of what else is happening in the field. And so basically it's like detaching again, that ego from your intuition so that you're really open to the negative feedback and you're really open to, to seeing uh, if what you're doing is actually working as effectively as possible, your intuition can get better and better. But if you protect yourself and your intuition, uh, you can go deeper and deeper into sort of suboptimal performance. And so I talk a lot about how to better educate our intuitions while still relying on it, but, but really testing it and, and challenging it at all times. So it's, it's really funny. And, and you get this all the time with, uh, you know, self-help or, or personal development, just like with chiropractic, is that at the beginning of your, your career, you kind of want to surround yourself with like-minded people to help you um, to get your confidence and, and to, to gain your expertise um, until you get that momentum going. And then it's kind of interesting from reading your book, once you get rolling, you almost want to take some time and, and like you said, spend some time with the enemy or, or expose yourself to the other side just to keep you kind of sharp. Is that kind of, cause it's interesting. Cause we always say, you know what, go through your personal circle, surround yourself with like-minded people so that they don't drag you down. But then that can be that expert trap, right? That if yeah. you, yeah, I mean, you don't want to when you're starting out in your career, you don't want a whole bunch of people who are telling you no, as you know, and don't do this, and here's why this is wrong. You know, you want to once you're committed to a path, you want people who are going to support you for sure. But if you surround yourself with people who support you throughout your career, you know, we, we see example of after example of people who are completely blind to what the market and the environment is telling them. And you're running blockbuster video and you surround yourself with people who are telling you what a great model it is and you're telling you it's not worth, you know, working on streaming video. Um, and just, you're going to feel good every day that you go to work until suddenly, you know, your company is gone. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and I imagine like, you know, in, when there was a, or I know from studying it, that there was an animosity towards the whole idea of streaming video at Blockbuster. Uh, don't mention that, don't talk about that. We hate that here. Like, okay, well you can hate it, but that's the future. You know, in the same way, I, you know, I know from experience with my father that um, there's, with chiropractic, there's a bit of an us versus them mentality, of course, because the medical field is, is quite hostile. And um, so it's a, a community that sticks together. Um, you know, there are those people who cross over and, um, that's really helpful to get to know those kind of people and to not be, you know, closed off completely, even though there might be enemies in the traditional medical field who really do want to shut chiropractic down altogether in having those conversations and understanding each other's fields, you know, more possibilities kind of come forward. That's really cool. Now I know you've been doing like speaking and traveling around with the launch of your book. Um, what kind of, have you had any kind of cool stories from someone who's read the book and, 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 and that they've kind of had a cool experience or, or an awakening or, or some of the feedback you've received? Yeah. I mean, I had a really interesting experience, for instance, uh, working with a, uh, a large company that, you know, read the book. They wanted me to come in and they want to talk about, you know, how can we do it? You know, a 40 minute workshop on some of this stuff. And I'm like, okay, 40 minutes to try to get yourself more creative. Um, <laughs> That's hard, but we were really looking at the cultural piece. And one of the pieces in the book is about how do you make it safe to get unsafe, which is a little bit ironic, you know, that in companies where 
every where the rules are all gone and people are like cowboy culture, swashbuckling, you know, just do your thing. Those tend to actually be environments where people take less and less risks because they're afraid if they don't feel safe in their work, they won't go out and take those risks. And so I, I was, we were working on that piece of it. And, you know, it was part of a, a larger kind of retreat where everyone was talking about how great everything was going within the company and how much progress they were making. And then, you know, I just put up on the board kind of four or five things that tend to de decrease psychological safety. So I was like, you know, is this an expert culture where, you know, experts get all the talking time? You know, is this a, a cult of leadership culture where, you know, the leaders always speak first and, you know, if you, you have to gain status in order to speak? you know, uh, is, there, is this a right versus wrong culture where, you know, there's things you should say and things you shouldn't. And I put those things up there and ask people to just kind of put notes on the board where they're like, yes, it's this. And the sort of like emotional outpouring and data that came out of those conversations where people were like, yeah, everything's going okay at this company, but we totally are falling into all of these traps and people even at high levels admitting like, I can't be creative here because I'm, I'm too afraid that this is going to happen to me or I'm going to be shot down in this way. So I thought that in some ways, um, those kind of experiences which have been happening more and more of talking about bringing the personal and the creative up to the level of management and, you know, um, science unlocks conversations that people otherwise wouldn't have. It's not just about the performance and it's not just about human resources. It's about really where psychology and performance meet. Um, some really great conversations can happen. So um, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be back in Europe a couple times this, in the next couple months and I'm going to be meeting some, uh, some startup entrepreneurs in Arizona and I'm going to be going to a storytelling conference um, where it's, you know, all about how to unlock further creativity on television. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's such a broad book, which is great in some ways and, you know, a little difficult in others, um, but everybody who wants to be more creative who's read the book, you know, and is interested in it has, has reached out and so like how do we take this to the next level and so that's a great creative challenge for me so it's only been out a couple months but so far lots of great conversations i actually had a uh, had a call from um going to be giving a talk to a, a state that i don't know if they want to say who it is but it's a state tourism agency they're 50 out of 50 in terms of most popular state to visit um, and they're, <laughs> we, we need some uh, we need some unsafe thinking right now too so i think people who are in the crisis you know often sense that it's it's unsafe thinking that's needed because, you know, doing more of the same certainly won't get them anywhere. Totally. Now, again, we have podcast listeners or chiropractors all over the world. So in Australia and UK and all that stuff, it, it, like, is, is there an availability for people to come and see you speak or do you have anywhere where it has a, a list where you're going to be available to speak? Yeah, I mean, or? If, you my, if you go to my website, jonasax.com, I've been, I've been updating it as I can. Um, so it doesn't have absolutely everything. And, um, you know, I've uh, been doing a bunch of kind of public talks, um, but up, coming up and now in the next few months, mostly going to be conferences and stuff. So um, probably a little bit less, like just stop by the bookstore, um, but I'll try to keep that updated. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, in closing, I always, again, I like to give the last couple minutes uh, to my, my guest just to kind of give the last kind of parting words of what your intent for the listeners out there. If they read this book, what is your intent for them to, to get? Yeah. I mean, I, I want people to, kind of break out of whatever rut they feel that they're they've fallen into and if, you know i think we all to some degree know that we could do more and that we can unlock more potential within ourselves and uh, sometimes it doesn't take a particular prescribed path to do that it takes stimulation and 
oh, I, I never thought of that and unlocking their own, you know, your own internal genius. And that's what the book tries to do. It's not, there's lots and lots of tips and try this and do that. Um, but it's really not like if you do, as I say, you will be a genius more like there's a lot inside of you that uh, maybe some new perspectives can, can unlock and open up. And, and so far, I think that's what I've been seeing has been happening for people who resonate with the book. So I hope people will kind of look at it and say, yeah, I'm already doing a lot of this, but I've never thought of doing that. And that, that's going to really open me up. And, you know, if I break it down to just some little simple things that we can do tomorrow, you know, I think one of them is when we feel that stress and we feel that anxiety of the world is changing around us, you know, stop and reframe that anxiety, not as something that we should move away from, but you know, say, this is fuel for creativity. When I get to that edge where things are making me nervous, that's where things have happened for me in the past. And there's a lot of really interesting science about how that reframing really works. And a lot of people that I talk to who are great innovators don't say, oh, I just don't ever feel afraid. I just go for it. I crush it every time. They say, I feel more afraid than many people. But when I get to that edge where I'm making myself nervous, I know that I'm on the edge of something important or could be. And then, you know, don't overload yourself with risk. Don't just say, I'm going to constantly push myself to the edge. But find that thing where you're like, this is, the this is the place I know that I can't continue down the same path. And then give yourself a chance to generate, you know, 25% more ideas and possibilities than you normally would. Staying in that open creative mode just a little bit longer and um, moving towards those ideas you haven't tried before often opens up new creative possibilities. That's great. And that just just reminded me, who's that researcher in there that talked about the zone who, where, where you want to push yourself about 4% out of your comfort zone? They, um, yeah. So uh, I... I can tell you his name, but you won't be able to look it up on Google because you won't be able to spell it. Um, <laughs> his name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Oh, that's um, why I couldn't remember it. <laughs> uh, but if you look up flow theory, you know, he talks about how important it is to constantly be doing things that are just slightly above your skill level in terms of their challenge. But not too high because then that stretches you out and then exactly. you get out of the zone. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. And, and, and where can people get the book? Is it Amazon everywhere? You can yeah, everywhere you can buy a book online or, you know, check out your local bookstore. Okay. That's wonderful. Well, thanks so much again for coming back on the podcast. I really appreciate it, Jonah. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. So everybody, uh, again, get out and get this book. I just finished it. It was awesome. And it's uh, going to help you take it to the next level. And like always, get out there and crush the curse. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you receive value from this episode, please take some time to rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. If you know a fellow chiropractor that could benefit from this message, please share it with them. Because it's my goal to provide you with great content, please contact me if you have any questions at drdonmcdonald.com or find me on Facebook. I look forward to hearing from you. So until next time, Dr. Don out.